I'm going to read all of chapter 19 of 1 Samuel. So hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel." You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning, but Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed." So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went off and lived at Nioth and was told Saul, behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they're at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? And so ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask the Lord to to bless our time together. Father in heaven, you say that uh, your word does not go away from you void, but accomplishes exactly what it purposes, just as the rain waters the earth and does not return void. We do pray, Father, that your word would accomplish its purpose this morning. 
We do pray that you would reveal your grace to us, your protection of us, that you would expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, that we might bow the knee to Christ and cling to the hope that is in him. Lord, would you teach us, instruct us, correct us, and rebuke us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In, in many ways, this passage is quite similar to what we saw last week in chapter 18. Saul had become jealous with the attention and affection that David had received from the people of Israel, and his jealousy had progressed into a murderous set of thoughts and murderous plots, all of which were ultimately failed. And yet, sin does not simply go away. Sin does not, or sinful hearts do not pass like a bad mood after a good night's sleep. They don't, sin doesn't go away with age. Sin in our hearts must be dealt with. It must be repented of. It must be put to death. And if not, it will continue to deal with us to our harm and the harm of those around us. And despite numerous attempts that the Lord had thwarted of Saul trying to take David's life, Saul didn't yield to the Lord. He doubled down in his murderous intents. He became more intensely focused. It became even more a controlling purpose of his life. It became more explicit, more overt. It became this uncontrollable itch that he had to do, and he did everything he could to try to scratch. And yet at the same time, what we can see in our passage today, in connection with our passage last week, is God's continual and continuous and persistent protection of David. In many ways, what's going on here is there's a battle going on between Saul and and the Almighty God. Saul is contending with God. God had said that he had rejected Saul, that he was taking the kingdom away from Saul and giving it to someone better than him. God had promised to David that he would be the anointed king, and yet Saul is doing everything in his power to try to stop that, to put David to death. And so God repeatedly, again and again, is protecting David. And in this passage, in many different ways, many uh, unique interactions through the work of people, even directly by the work of his spirit. But also, if we have eyes to see it, we can see God's patient and persistent grace to King Saul. With each and every failed attempt, each and every thwarted attempt on David's life, God was giving Saul yet another opportunity to repent to bow the knee, to yield, to submit to the Almighty God, to turn from his wickedness and to the Lord. And beloved, we, it is such a blessing to us that God would give us a passage like this to look at King Saul as a mirror of the sinfulness of our own hearts. Because there is a blinding nature to sin. We can look at Saul throughout this passage. We can see all of his murderous attempts, and we can see the folly of his ways. 
And we can see it in the lives of other people around us, but very, it's very difficult for us sometimes to see it in our own lives. And in this passage, we see uh, startling and remarkable things about the nature and the effects of the sinful heart. We ought to see them as, uh, they ought to be like a flashlight shine on, shining in the darkness of our hearts so that we might inspect our own heart to, to identify, do we see, do we hear these ways that the Lord is attempting to reach us? Just as Saul was hardened and refused to listen, was stubborn in his blindness oh, again and again and again, are we being pursued by the Lord? Is he seeking to reach our heart? And so as we go through these things, as we, as we see these different aspects of the effects of the sinful heart, brothers and sisters, I would implore you, think about, answer these questions that we ask for yourself. We can see the sin in others. Try not to think about anybody else but your own heart laid bare before the Lord this morning. Let the Lord shine his light so that you might bow the knee to Christ and yield yourself to him. So we'll look at these effects through these three different episodes that we have in this story, and we'll, we'll see the effects through each of these episodes. And that very first episode is this interaction that Saul has with his son, Jonathan. What we see in this is that the sinful heart permits passions, sinful passions to overrule reason and logic. Now Saul, probably in confidence, told his servants and his son, Jonathan, I want you to go and kill David. But as we learned last week, and as we see again this week in our passage, Jonathan loved David. Jonathan loved David. We heard last week that he loved him as his own soul, and here it says that he greatly delighted. He delighted much in David. So Jonathan went to David, and he said, David, my, my father wants to kill you. Be on your guard. Go hide in a secret place. I will go in, you know, talk to my father, and whatever I find out, I will let you know. And so Jonathan did just that. He went to his father Saul, Saul and, he's, and he did what a, a godly man would do in the midst of such irrational behavior. He sought to create peace. He was a godly peacemaker. He was a, a godly man. He was a godly son. And he comes in humility and respect and he offers before, to Saul what has been pointed out as sound, rational, moral, and theological reasons to his father. He says, Father, why, why would you sin against David? He has not sinned against you. In fact, he's been a blessing to you. He risked his life when he, took, when he fought to Goliath. And what's more, God worked salvation through that. And you saw it, and you rejoiced. Why would you take innocent blood? Why would you kill him? And his logic, his reason prevailed upon Saul, at least temporarily. And Saul swore an oath, and he said, As surely as the Lord lives, I will not take David's life. And so Jonathan told David and brought him back in the house. But then there was another battle, another war, and David went off to, to battle. David was victorious again, and he came back, and sure enough, 
We can expect that those songs were sung again and Saul was reminded of his disdain and his jealousy and his anger for David. And as before, there was David in Saul's house playing the lyre, serving Saul, seeking to calm his spirit. And Saul sitting there with a spear in his hand. And yet again, Saul hurled his spear at David and David eluded him. And we can sense the passion now that Saul has because it says that when he hurled the spear, it stuck into the wall. He threw it with such, such force. And David escaped. And beloved, when if we have eyes to see and a heart to admit our own passions, our own anger, our own jealousy, it is entirely illogical and absurd. It is unreasonable. And the irony of it is that there is no time when we feel more rational, more reasonable, more clear-minded than in the midst of our anger and our passions. And like Saul, it's very true that more often than not, the people that we harm most with our anger and the passions of our sin are those who have done nothing to harm us, have not sinned against us, but those who are seeking to bring blessing to us, those who love us most dearly are the ones that we hurt most frequently. And when people come to speak into our irrational passions, we might listen for a time. We might be won over for a time, but reason is largely powerless to win over in the heat of the passions of the moment. It's when the passions rage, when the anger rages in that moment, nothing else matters than what I feel. And what I feel is right. We say, I know what's right. I don't care. I know I need to be self-controlled. But I don't want to be self-controlled right now. I want this. I need this. And so I will take this. And the absurdity of our passions is that they harm us. They're not good. They're destructive. They never satisfy. They cause us problems. They're not glorifying to God. And yet logic and reason are powerless to do anything about it. Jonathan wasn't able to win over his father. In fact, the only thing that's powerless to defeat the power of our passions is the power of God himself. And that's what Jesus Christ came to give us. Of course, he had to endure the unreasonable passions and the jealous anger of the people. And that's what drove him to death. That's what put Jesus Christ on the cross. But it wasn't the world that hated him. It was his own people. It was the religious leaders. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. It was the religious leaders who hated him without cause. He came and he brought nothing but blessing, grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing. He healed people. He spoke the truth. He encouraged. He raised the dead. He was perfect in every way, and they hated him. 
But they were so blinded by their jealousy and blinded by their passions that they were unreasonable. And there were those who sought to reason with them. But they were the most unlikely sources. It was Judas. After he had betrayed Jesus, he came to the religious leaders and he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he said, what's that to us? We don't care. It was Pilate who put before them Barabbas next to Jesus and says, should I release Barabbas or Jesus? Because he knew that they wanted to kill Jesus out of envy. And they said, Barabbas. And he said, why? What evil has he done? What evil has he done? And they said, we don't care. Crucify him. Or the thief on the cross. He said to the other thief, we are getting what we deserved. This man's done nothing wrong. But beloved, this was what Jesus endured. He endured this jealous and unreasonable anger to break the power of sin in our lives. Break the power of our passions. It was through his death that he broke the power of death so that we can pray, lead us not into the power of temptation, but deliver us from evil. Forgive us our sins. It was his resurrection that gave us new life. It was his spirit that he has given to us, his spirit of power and love and self-control so that now we are sanctified by the truth. His, his truth dwells within us and cultivates in us righteousness so that we can be, as James says, we can have we can be reasonable, but it's only in Christ Jesus. So dear brothers and sisters, how has God been seeking to reason with you and to show you the error of your ways, to show you the sin in your hearts? Has it been through the preached word of God, the pro proclamation from the pulpit? Has it been in private study as you've read God's word? Has it been in personal interactions where brothers and sisters in Christ have sought to reason with you and to explain to you, listen, please? Oh, beloved, this is God's grace to you. He's pursuing after you. Listen to him. Be open to reason. Yield. Submit to him. The second episode that we have is this episode with uh, David's wife, Michal. And immediately after David uh, escapes this most recent spear attack, he rushes home to uh, Michal. And in this episode, what we see is that the sinful heart is self-centered and unkind. And as David shows up, no doubt he told Michal about yet another attempt on his life. Um, and Michal says to him, if you do not leave tonight, then they are going, you will be dead in the morning. And so she lets him out the window so that he can escape. Saul had sent messengers to watch over him so that he might kill him in the morning. And in order, to, after letting him out the windows, Michal seeks to buy David some time so he can flee away. And she she does her best Ferris Bueller reenactment. She takes a household god and she puts it into the bed. And she takes a pillow that is a goat's hair pillow and puts it at the head of this statue and puts his clothes on top of it. And then when the messengers come to get David, she says, oh, well, he's sick. 
He's sick. You know, he, not, come, come back later. So they go back to Saul, and Saul says, bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. And so they go back, and it says, and behold, there was the image. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And Saul came to his daughter, and he confronted her, and he says, why have you deceived me? Why have you deceived me? Did you, why did you let my enemy escape so that he got away? And Michal answered her father saying, well, you don't understand, Dad. He threatened my life. He said, you must let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, there, there's, some, there's some room for discussion about the ethics of Saul's daughter, uh, not to mention this household God that seems to be in their house, in David and Michal's house, why they had this household God. But Michal is clearly given to deception. She is uh, deceptive in staging this, this lookalike in, in the bed. She's uh, deceptive in telling the messengers that, that he's sick, and, and she's deceptive to her father when she explains the reason why she got away. We're not going to talk about the ethics of her actions except to say this. David's life was in imminent danger. What she was doing was an act to protect her husband from imminent danger from the unreasonable actions of King Saul. But what we do want to focus on is this. It was Saul's self-centered passions that created the circumstances for this whole situation. It was Saul who let his passions rage. Saul who sent his messengers to capture David. He was unreasonable. He was not willing to listen to anybody. And he was attacking David without cause. And it was putting Jonathan and Michal in a position where they had to decide, am I going to submit to my father and give over David to my father or am I going to protect David? And beloved, that is the self-centered nature of sin. That is the self-centered nature of sin. Notice what Saul says. He says, why have you deceived me? Why have you let my enemy escape? He's the victim here. Daughter, you, you should have been helping me. I'm like, don't you know, like I'm trying to kill David? His... Saul's servants seem to have some heart of compassion, some degree of kindness for David. They, they come, they obviously didn't know what they were doing when they first were sent, but they came and, oh, well, David's sick. So, Saul, your son-in-law is sick. We let, we let him get some, a little extra R&R so he'd get better before we brought him to you. Saul didn't care. He said, bring him to me that I may kill, bring him in the bed. Just, just. I don't care how he gets here. Get him here. I'm going to kill him on the spot. Saul had no compassion for his daughter. That was her husband. That was the man that she loved. He said, it was, it was all about Saul. Why have you, why have you deceived me? What, what have I done wrong to you, daughter? And beloved, that is, the, that is the nature, the self-centered nature of our sin. 
is that it not only blinds us to reason, but it blinds us to the facts. And it makes us believe that we are in the right and that everyone else must be on our side as well. But of course, deception doesn't save us from our self-centeredness. It is only the self-denying love of Jesus Christ that saves us from self-centeredness. But we can say that God saved us through the work of deception, through the deception that led to our Savior Jesus Christ laying down his life on the cross. It was through deception that he was betrayed with a kiss. He was arrested in the dark of night, not in the public temple in the light of day where everyone would know what was going on, but they had to do it in secret. He was convicted by a sham trial with false prophets through all that deception. And yet Jesus Christ did not flee from that deception. He didn't flee. He ran to it. He ran to it as an act of self-sacrifice, as an act of self-denying love. In fact, we could say rightly that the Lord Jesus, as the Son of God, the one for whom and through whom all things exist, is the proper center and reference point for all things. He is rightly self-centered. He would rightly demand all allegiance and praise and adoration and for everyone to bow the knee instantaneously. And yet, what did he do? He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to lay down his life. He came to show a self-emptying, a self-sacrificial, a self-denying love so that you and I could be his. And his Self-denying love and self-sacrificial love is what saves us from the self-centeredness of sin. It's when we look outside of ourselves to see him and his love for us that we gain a love for him and we understand his love for us. And understanding that love, it compels us to give our lives for him, to reorder our, priority, our priorities, reorganize our schedules, reorganize our, our lives, everything for him. And out of our love for him, naturally flows a love for one another, where we deny ourselves for each other, where we live for one another and sacrifice for one another. Beloved, have you learned this love? Do you know? Do you know how to love? Do you know how to get outside of yourself and to live for another, to live for others, and to give up the things that are important to you for what is important to him? And beloved, this is only possible in Christ Jesus by the power of his spirit of love that dwells within us. It is his spirit that gives us kindness. It is his spirit that enables us to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good, as we heard in our law passage. Well, David escaped from his house, and he fled to Samuel in Ramah, which is the third episode of this story. And what we see in this is a bit terrifying, 
but it's simply this, is that the sinful heart stubbornly refuses to listen, but will ultimately be humbled. So David runs into Samuel. It's been a while since we've seen Samuel, but here he is in Ramah, his hometown, and David goes to meet him. He receives David, and David tells him everything that Saul has been doing, and no doubt Samuel's heart is further grieved, and the two of them go off to Nioth in Ramah. We don't know exactly what Nioth and Ramah is. Some people think it may be a homestead where the school or the company of the prophets were being trained, but that's where they went. Someone saw it. Someone told Saul. Saul sent messengers. When the messengers come to Nioth, the Spirit of God rushed upon them when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel you know, leading them, and these messengers began to prophesy. And Saul heard about that, and so he, he sent another group. Same thing. They saw the prophets prophesying with the, the company of the prophets, with Samuel standing over them, the Spirit of God rushed on them. They too began to prophesy. And Saul then sends a third group. Again, same thing. Well, sometimes if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. Or so Saul may have thought, since he couldn't seem to get these messengers to bring back David, and so he decided to go. So in one sense, we can, we can immediately see there seems to be a great deal of foolishness in, in Saul. He just he can't seem to get it through his head that he's not going to win this battle. Like how can he not see every one of these instances failing? But here he goes again. Perhaps in his mind, he thought maybe, maybe he thought he was immune to the work of the Spirit. The Spirit had departed from Saul, left him alone. Maybe he'll, leave him, maybe he'll leave him alone. He'll just be able to snatch David and bring him back and kill him. Well, he come, came to Ramah. He asked somebody, you know, hey, do you know where Saul and, or Samuel and, and, and David are? And they said, well, they're in Nioth and Ramah. And Saul goes there and same thing. And there were three, I don't know if you caught this, but there were three groups of messengers that the Spirit overtook. Well, when Saul comes, we're told three times, that the Spirit did the same thing with Saul. And it says, verse 23, when he came there to Nioth and Ramah, the Spirit of God came upon him also, as he came and prophesied until he came to Nioth, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. So it said, is Saul also among the prophets? Friends, we need to get past the, the oddity and the awkwardness of the situation to understand that what is happening here is that God himself is no longer using mediators to try to speak to Saul. It is God's direct hand of influence, his spirit of power rushing upon Saul to humble him before the Lord. It is the spirit working in Saul to strip him of his royal garb and to throw him to the ground in humility, to expose him as naked before the Lord. And beloved, this is the folly of sin. The folly of sin that will cause us to be stubborn and blind and to keep hitting our head against a wall no matter 
what is standing in our way, no matter who is saying what, to continue at it. But we can't miss the grace that God is extending to Saul again and again and again. All throughout Saul's life, the Lord has been pleading with him through Samuel, through, through the loss of battles. So now in chapter 19, it's Jonathan, his son, it's Michal, it's his daughter. It's these three rounds of messengers until finally the Lord humbles Saul. But this is not a humbling unto salvation, beloved. This is a humbling to protect David. This is a humbling exposing the power of God in bringing Saul to an end. This is a foretaste of the eternal humbling that all who do not humble themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ will experience for all eternity, exposed to God's terrors and wraths under his foot for all eternity. And beloved, is the Lord trying to get your attention? Has the Lord been seeking to pursue after you and you have not been listening? Or have you been refusing his advances? Beloved, it is easy for us to think that God doesn't care, he doesn't see, he's aloof. Or worse yet, that we think that his grace just excuses whatever we choose to do. Nothing could be further than the truth, beloved. We are called to bow the knee to Christ by faith, which means we put our trust in him, but it also means that we live for him. We reorder our lives for him, and we humbly obey his word. We tremble before his word and before our God. And God has made abundantly clear that our sin will be dealt with. If not by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, then for all eternity. And so, beloved, I urge you to take this seriously and soberly. God will not stop until your sin is dealt with. He will not let things be. He will accomplish justice. He will be revered. Christ will be exalted. But beloved, the hope of the Gospels, that is why Jesus Christ came, was to deal with our sin. He came and was persistent in his love. Again and again, he proclaimed his love. It led him deliberately to the cross so that in him, the punishment that we deserve was laid upon him. And beloved, if our hope is in him, We are truly free. We are free from that fear, but we must live for him who gave himself for us. And we must listen to him when he calls to us. But beloved, what we need to see is that salvation, this true salvation, if we look at this last incident, salvation is not a mere operation of the Spirit. It is not a mere set of actions. The Holy Spirit operated on Saul. Saul prophesied. Saul fell on his face before the Lord. Those were operations of the Spirit. That is not salvation. Mere affections or actions, even in the name of Christ, are not salvation, beloved. We can worship. 
We can attend worship. We can read our Bibles. We can teach Sunday school. We can stand and lead worship. We can do all the things and be apart from Christ. It is only by the power of Christ, of the the Spirit of God, uniting us to Christ Jesus by faith that his power becomes our power, his life becomes our life, and we have true salvation in his name. Beloved, it is not feelings or actions, but it is life in Christ. And this is a work of God's sovereign spirit, which he did not do in this Saul, but he did do in another Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, well-educated, Lover of God, or so he thought. Lover of God's word, or so he thought. Zealous for the law of God. Hater of the church. Seeking to purify it. Had a ravenous appetite for destroying the church. And he was unreasonable. His teacher, the Pharisee Gamaliel, said, Leave these guys alone. If, if this Christian sect is of of man, it, was, it is going to fail. And you don't have to worry about it. But if th- this is of God, you are not going to be able to stop it. In fact, you will find yourself opposing God. But Saul didn't listen because his passions dro- drove him. And so he raved and he plotted and he asked for letters and he went all the way to Damascus And on the way, the Lord directly intervened in his life. He who thought he saw everything clearly was blinded. He who was clothed with pride was stripped bare and thrust to the ground. But it was not as a show of God's power unto destruction, but unto salvation. It was a humbling of Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, to equip him to proclaim the the majesties of the glory of the unsearchable riches of Christ and the power of the gospel unto salvation. And so radical was the transformation in that man that the people said, is Saul even among the apostles? Beloved, this is the difference. The difference is the power of the Spirit working in us to do stuff versus the power power of the Spirit to change us by his salvation, by uniting us to Christ. Beloved, do do you know that salvation? Do you know this power, this power of the Spirit? Have you tasted the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ? And how do you know? How do you know? I hope you can say yes, but I think our text gives us uh, three different ways that we can test. Not perfect tests, but tests nevertheless. The first is, are you reasonable? Apostle James says, the wisdom from above, the wisdom that comes in Christ, the wisdom of God is reasonable. That means that we are willing to, able to be reasoned with, we are willing to listen, we are quick to listen. Specifically, that we're willing to put ourselves under the authority of God's word. Beloved, when God speaks to you through the 
public proclamation of the gospel at the pulpit, when he speaks to you in the private reading, when he speaks to you personally from brothers and sisters, do you listen? Are you willing to listen? Or is it in one ear or out the other? We must be reasonable. Second is, do you truly love? Natural man in which we are all born is self-centered. We live for ourselves. But love is of God because God is love, and it is a true test. If someone says, I love God, but I don't have love, I'm a liar. Do you know the love of Christ? Do you have a love for Christ? Do you have a love for the Father, a love for the Spirit? And does that love compel you to love and give yourself to your brothers and sisters? Or is your love contingent on getting what you want? And finally, do you have true humility? Have you been stripped of your pride in all of its forms, stripped of your pride of intelligence, your pride of what you have done, your pride of your family, the pride of your life, the pride of possessions, whatever pride in any form, have you been stripped of it and found it as nothing, as dung, and your life claim has been, I must decrease, he the Lord Jesus Christ must increase. Oh, that I would be empty, that he would fill me with his love and he would live through me and that I would be transformed for him. Beloved, is that your heart's cry? Is that the humility that you have, beloved? This is the work of the Spirit. And if you, if you can claim that, then praise God. God has been at work in you. But if you feel that lacking, know this, Jesus said, the Father gives the Spirit to those who ask him. Ask him, plead for his Spirit. Ask him to change you into the image of Christ. Help him, ask him to use that power of the gospel to give you life in him. Beloved, salvation in Christ is a work of the Spirit through faith. And faith comes through hearing even through the preached word of Christ, and whether you have never truly put your faith in Christ and been allowed him to transform you by his power, or whether you claim to have known Christ your entire life, he offers you himself. He offers you his spirit today. Oh, please, hear him. Listen to him. Receive his Holy Spirit. Be transformed by him and receive the salvation that is in his name. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you hold before us this passage as a mirror for our, our heart. But Lord, I pray that you would be gentle with us even as we our hearts may condemn us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. And if we feel that condemnation, that we would flee to Christ that you would protect us even from your wrath. Protect us from the condemnations of the evil one. Help us to hide ourselves in you, you who are a sure refuge. And would you fill us with your love, that we might love you and bear witness to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.